Okay, welcome to the Grotto Pod. <clears throat> you know what? what? This is episode 100. <gasps> Yay! What? We're yeah. so lucky. This and we have our... Jamie Ford wow. with us. We have Jamie Ford. And speaking of Jamie Ford, let me give you a little CV. Tell us. Tell us. On Jamie Ford. His new book is Love and Other Consolation Prizes. Um, his newest book. His newest book. Before that came Songs of Willow Frost. And prior to that, the big one. Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was so many people's picks that I couldn't keep the whole... It's like Borders, Barnes & Noble, etc. 2010 Asian Pacific America Award, book, award winner. 2010 Washington Book Award finalist. 2009 Montana Book Award. 2009 yeah. Book stop, Browser. Top stop, three favorite stop. books. We love it. Uh, and so we're going to get... We have Jamie here and we want to talk about those books, but also I'm interested in his craft, I'm interested in his background, and I'm interested in why he chooses to tell these sprawling, time travel, extensively researched tales. So let's start with that. So I read an interview with you uh, where you were asked about that, and you said, and it was specifically about a hotel in the corner of Bitter and Sweet, and you said, um, you know, I'm more interested in the family drama and the story (laughs) and the characters and I thought immediately, are you kidding? You know, just reading the opening of the new book, the, the, it opens in the 1962 Seattle World's Fair, which I wasn't around for. Were you around for it? Uh, no, no. No, not no, even in an embryonic no, fashion. No. But it's so meticulously detailed. So I'm curious first to know if that's always been, when you think of writing a story, you start with, all right, I'm going to set it in the 1930s, so I better start now. You described yourself as an archaeologist in that same interview, but why why do that? Why not just write now? Ooh, um, we'll, we'll jump back to that because I, I, I actually the book I'm working on now is now and it's in the past and it's also speculative. So I'm sort of spreading my wings a little bit. It's a little more that uh, seems to be a theme this week. Schizophrenic, yeah, yeah. yeah everyone's yeah. jumping through time. Um, but I do like the details. I think with science fiction and fantasy, there's this concept of world building, and you. you build in a, a political system and a magic system and a religious context or whatever and and it comes alive and with historical stuff i just want to get everything right i want to know who the kardashians were in 1936 or you know who people were Ooh. complaining about because there's always someone in pop culture that's just rattling everyone's cages and i want to know all about that so where do you start oh where do i start do you oh. go to a library do you start googling <laughs> I mean- uh i found that the last book it was so much older that i you know i couldn't do first-hand research because everyone you know dead. they're dead yeah um and so with the other books i went to the locations um now that i have a book published i can go to seattle and the the museums all let me in their archives i put on the little white gloves and it's you know you go down there um before that it was just reading the most god-awful academic out-of-print books yeah. you could imagine but i was looking for an answer and so i just geek out over a book until i would find it um but like with, with Love and Other Constellation Prizes, um, I just I find people that are also experts that I can interview. Okay. In, in this case, um, much of the book is set in Seattle's Red Light District, and I, I tracked down a woman who was an expert on Seattle's Red Light District, and I, I flew to Seattle, met her for coffee. Um, turns out she's also a, a high-paid escort. Um, really? Oh, yes. how did you find that out? She's really into uh, her business. She's also a public librarian. 
Oh my so god! I always changed, had this this like intuition some guys about ideal librarians. Woman. She, she changed my opinion of sex workers and librarians over one, one cup of coffee. Time. Yeah, yeah. That's and, awesome. and just to make it clear, when he talks about Seattle's red light district, you're talking about it at the turn of the century. Too. Yeah. So you have to really dig back. Um, how important is it to you to get? mundane details correct how important was it to know that it was danny k making that speech at the opening of the world's fair (laughs) yeah i i I have these conversations with my editor because she says you could just make it up and no one would care but i care and every once in a while i meet someone who does as well so like in my second book there's this nun sister briganti and she's listening to uh the radio during the depression and there's a, a guy on the radio that was known, uh, the Father Coughlin radio show. Oh, yeah. oh bad. Oh, do you guys know who that is? <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> wow. We have a little game we play here in the Grotto Pod. We see what happens first. Do I mention that I'm Jewish? Or does Bridget mention that she's from Montana? This doesn't count because she, I was kind of rigged into this, right? This is not my fault. So, yes, I have heard of Father And I'm Coughlin. Catholic, okay. so that's how we both responded like okay. that to Father Coughlin. But he was like the Rush Limbaugh of the Depression. He was, he was not good for the He was a Jews. very, no. very bad person. Yeah, yeah. so I, I wanted to put him in there because he was real. Yeah. And yeah. then no one... And a real threat. Totally. Yeah. And most people don't care, but then I, I'll meet someone that you guys, yeah. like you guys didn't know, or someone, I met a guy whose his doctoral thesis was on Father Coughlin, yeah. and he was just like over the moon that I had mentioned this that's very fantastic. obscure thing. So is he very obscure? See, I didn't realize. I that. didn't think he was obscure. My, yeah. my is father obscure? is a World War II vet um, and Catholic, and so I kind of grew up with the with the shame of that that era. I, I love that. I, I feel I'm, I'm kind of a baseball dork, and I feel that same. If you meet someone who knows as much about Marty Slats Marion as I do, <laughs> it's like, wow, let's talk about Marty Marion for 15 minutes. But you know, they it say is. with fiction that people are always trying to figure out what's real and what what's not. Um, and in nonfiction, they're always trying to figure out what you've made up. Um, so it's like the opposite. So, so the game of gotcha is, is at play, I think. Yeah. And also, if I can just interrupt, um, is it restricting at all? You know, you're bound by your, it's pretty much your own self-imposed need to get all the facts straight. Because who's going to say, well, I, I remember 1909 Seattle and it wasn't like that. It, it, it depends on the source matter. And, and I, I have a certain reverence for some things and other things I just don't care about. And so um, the first book dealt with the Japanese internment. There's still people among us who have the firsthand memory of that. And so I had a very, I, I did have a reverence for that. A sense I, of responsibility. A to sense them. of responsibility. But then there's a little detail where uh, someone calls someone Casper. It's kind of a, a racial you know, mm-hmm. push. And. It's 1942, and Casper wasn't Casper the Friendly Ghost. For those of you that are, don't know who Casper was, um, he wasn't created till 1943, and oh. I, and I didn't care. And then I did an NPR interview, uh, and read that section, and I got bombed with emails from I'll Casper bet. enthusiasts. Oh, so who knew? I can I can see that. Love to like pick apart. Unquestionably. I can see that. on the other hand, you know, maybe it gives you a nice little framework that you know you have to work within. Yeah, some things I. I make up out of whole cloth. Some things I, I stretch a little bit, but probably 98% of it is is where I want it to be. The characters are made up, and that's where I have latitude to do whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I read that the new book was based on a true story. It, it is. Um, so that obviously is why it was set when it is. But can you say a little bit more about that? Like, how did you encounter the story? Were you going looking for your next novel, or how did it happen? Yeah, I, I was kind of looking for my next novel. I... I I was always curious about that first World's Fair in 1909 in Seattle. And they had 
these themed days. So every day there was a theme and a prize. So, you know, on agriculture day, they raffled off a cow. And on mining day, they raffled off 3,000 copper ingots. And on September 15th, 1909, when President Taft visited the fair, it was Washington Children's Day, and they raffled off a child. And I kept tripping over that fact and the way it was casually mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I just had to know more about this kid. And there's not a lot known except where he came from, what his name was, things like that. And after that, um, what we found out was the, the receiving home burned all their records in the 30s. So no one knows where he ended up. Wow. Um, but it created a nice blank canvas to, to paint a different picture. I think it's worth saying that this boy is from China, right? He's from a, it's, from a boat from it's, China? It, in my book, he's, yeah, he's half Chinese and he's an immigrant. Um, some people have told me, like, oh, no, he definitely would have been Caucasian. And other people said, oh, no, he would definitely be either Native American or, or African American. Because what I was going to say is that World's Fairs have a history of a lot of racist um, treatment of non-white Americans within yeah. the World's Fair framework. Yeah, we call them ethnographic exhibits. Correct. Back then, it was a human zoo. Right, um, right. Ooh. I mean, it's now it's just contextualized. So we have Kardashians. It just, we just have other, <laughs> another other type of person on display. You know, I think um, you've broken the record for most times mentioning Kardashians. I, on might, a I think that episode. is true. And it's I, early I, still. I, I have to. I can't resist a Montana digression. Uh, of course, Larry knows this, but um, plus I already lost. So go ahead. I know. So yeah, I win. You lose. And um, ni- do you know about the 1904 World's Fair with the um, Montana? women's basketball team from Fort Shaw, Montana, yes. right? So, like, that figures into my new book. But um, You're burying the lead. Tell them where you're from. And I'm also from Great Falls, by the way. What? You're from Adequate Falls? <laughs> which I've never met anyone, I don't think, who's moved to Great Falls. On purpose. Um, on purpose. That's the witness protection program. I witnessed a horrible <laughs> no murder ever when I was you. 12. Um, and I'll talk about so it. So I'm, of course, fascinated by you and that story of you. But I was also, I've also, um, in research for my next book, which is about women's suffrage, um, just how much World's Fairs keep... Uh, reappearing in the story and what a central part of American history they were and this this piece um, of ethnographic museums or whatever. It's just, it's appalling and disgusting and one of the great things about the 1904 World's Fair was that this uh, native team from a tiny town in Montana wins the the championship, in uh, world championship of basketball. I'm, I'm curious because I, I, I know that story. Were they, was, was that a native boarding school it was it was a so boarding there's, school. there's a there's a it's, there's a dark side to that story oh, too there's then. a hugely oh, yeah. dark side <laughs> i mean not just that it was a native boarding school but um i mean they were on display as both as basketball players and as native maidens and, sure you know and, and if if it was like any of the other indian boarding schools they were probably had to cut their hair and, and beaten for speaking their language and, yeah and um, some of them lost siblings from illness, who also ran away and died that way. I mean, it's a very dark chapter, and definitely this um, celebration of the team doesn't redeem that chapter of Montana history, for sure. But at the same time, it's a pretty amazing testament to the tenacity and will of Native uh, Native girls. In my opinion. <laughs> I mean, they add. kicked ass in well, like, uh, wool uniforms in yeah. St. Louis in July. Like, and heels <laughs> or something. I have a friend who was just elected to the Montana House of Representatives, and it's the first time that there's been a woman 
native in the yep. Montana House of Representatives, and it's 2000. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't surprise me at all. 18, I mean, 19. We can talk off mic about this Montana. endlessly. Um, <laughs> You're listening to Montana talk. <laughs> but, uh, I mean. This is Montana yeah, chat. It's, it's a, a terrible. To talk about fly history. tying techniques. <laughs> And I believe right now in the American Congress are the first two women native representatives to our national Congress as well. Yeah. So it's time. It's time. Hey, can we talk about Jamie's background? Sure. <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah, I want to talk about the West. Yeah. We're, I'm really interested in your relationship to the West. And we were saying off camera, so, so <laughs> you're half Caucasian, half Asian, and we've had a lot of Asian American guests on, but they're usually first generation uh, immigrants, but Jamie's family has been in the West since the mid 19th century. Yeah, and and did you? I think I read that you had a, you didn't know a lot of this stuff till about a year ago. A lot of your great grandfather's history. Wait, he must be more than great grandfather. Yeah, great great. Yeah, my great grandfather. Yeah, there there's a couple of missing pieces, and so I always knew that my great grandfather came over around 1865, um, and around. 1880-something, he changed his name from Min Chung to William Ford. And that's kind of the mystery. We don't know why he changed his name. I always you think can of imagine. It, yeah. Yeah, just it's, a, it's a like, rush to assimilate. Yeah, it's like someone coming here from Pakistan and changing their name to Chuck Norris or something. It's like, right. you know, America, let's do this. Um, and so, but I, I also think there if you were Asian... There's something going on out there. Oh, is there something going on out there? It sounds like I'm hearing a Bam. bass. And, yeah, <laughs> right. Um... You couldn't, if you're non-white, you couldn't buy property in Nevada. Right. And so we right. suspect that he changed his name and probably bought property from a distance. Oh. And well, just... I was going to ask, when did your family come to Washington? Oh, yeah, my dad was born there. Um, boy, it's like genealog- uh, genealogical sort of pathways. Um, my great-grandfather came here when he was 13. He had nine children. He lived in Tonopah, Nevada, worked for the Borax Mining Company, and then they all sort of spread out. And so my grandfather ended up in California mm, okay. and Seattle, up and down the West Coast, mm-hmm. San Francisco to Seattle, Seattle, where my dad was born. So they immigrate through San Francisco, through Angel Island? They all came through San Francisco, but Angel Island didn't exist back then. Because that's, I think Angel Island is after the Chinese Exclusion Act. Oh, yeah. Angel Island, I think, was in oh. the 50s. Oh, that like it was, oh, okay. it was, it was, it was much late. later. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but, but it must be... Um, it must be a really cool thing to be able to trace your family's lineage through the West that way. I mean, it's such a new history, and your family's really been here. So, I mean, my family's been here 20 years longer than Donald Trump's family. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. It's an important distinction. And have you gone, the same time have you gone to Tonopah and retraced? <laughs> found no, any stuff? I haven't. You know, Tonopah, there's like a population of like 2,800 or something. There's not a lot there, but there is a, a museum there. And one of my great uncles, a bunch of his drawings and maps and things are there. So I, one of these days, I got to go there and dig deep. So how did you end up in Great Falls? <laughs> uh, before Montana, I was working and living in Hawaii. And oh. I was there for a Dude, number of what? years. And I just had rock fever. And I wanted to drive in a straight line. <laughs> and, you went to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. not for weather. Since, since That's a good segue <laughs> because I do want to start delving into kind of what what sort of shaped you as a writer but you haven't always been a writer right you had a you had a pre-career yeah i was uh uh interventional cardiologist for a number of years 
but uh, open heart surgery just wasn't challenging enough. Exactly. Uh, are you so are you friends with Tara Conklin? Because we interviewed her last night, and she has a similar story. Really? <laughs> well, she well, she, yeah, she went to Yale. She probably does. Yeah, no, she does. I'm not yeah. kidding. She was a high powered lawyer, but you were an ad man. Yeah, yeah, and and I and I don't have a four year degree, so I'm. Um, had a, a different path. Um, yeah, I had a. Uh, I went to art school, um, did design, became an art director, a creative director. Had a very interesting, fun career, but in that world, you're really pimping your creative soul by the hour. And after a while, I just got sick of doing that. But you were on the creative side. Yeah. So at least that. So how did that lead to writing? Uh, <laughs> um. We had some clients that were, like, if you've ever seen the show Mad Men, it's very true in the clients. Some are warm and generous and kind, and some we called pigs with checkbooks. Um, <laughs> pigs with checkbooks? Pigs with checkbooks, because <laughs> they're just, like, uber-rich and massive egos, and people yeah. are chattel. Yeah. Um, and I just got tired of certain clients, and so whenever I was not getting my creative yayas out at work, I would start writing at home with short fiction or trying novels. I just had to have a creative sandbox that I could call my own. And eventually, I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to move into the sandbox forever. Did you did wow. you grow up writing? Yeah, confession time. <laughs> I went That's to, what we're here for. In the fifth grade, I went to poetry camp. Poetry um, camp. What? Where is this? Everyone who's been to poetry camp, represent. <laughs> poetry camp. What? Wait, you Christian Wynn is raising his hand. He teaches poetry. He camp. teaches at poetry camp. I know I, not of poetry camp. I was in Ashland, Oregon. Which oh, is, that makes sense. Uh, right yeah, right. There. Okay, I think right. you kind of have to go to poetry camp if you <laughs> yeah, live in Ashland. Yeah, that's like you, oh, you get picked that. on if you or play football. Did you get cut from Shakespeare camp? And yeah, you had right. To go to poetry right. camp. I was slumming. Jamie, Uh-oh. there was no Hurry poetry up, camp, in camp in Great Falls, Montana. There was I just not. Want to tell you? Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. So I, I was always that kind of. Uh, artsy, overly sensitive child. Did you, were you a big reader? Yeah, but I was a big reader. Of, I mean, I still am a big consumer of comics. So I, I read. Oh, people tried to th- throw, you know, Nancy, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys at me, and I was just repulsed by it. But I like just could, superhero like stuff. Yeah, everything horror comics, superhero comics, anything. So this may sound like a roundabout question, but does that? I, I think it'd be hard to see, but how does that inform your writing now? If that's what you grew up reading, some, it's in there somewhere. Yeah, well, the funny thing is you learn world geography through comics, for me, because hmm. suddenly it's like this story is set in you know, oh. in Paris or the story is set in New York or if set in thoughtful. Cleveland. Yeah, if you're paying attention and no, the writer-artist cares. Um, and you know, I, I love the art. That was mm-hmm. what I geeked out about most. Um, and that led me to art school. But I really, I went to art school wanting to be a comic artist. Do you ever think about doing it again? Yeah, not not from the art side. I've written some graphic novel oh, scripts that have I been published. Collaborated. Oh, yeah, and that's, cool. that's, that's kind of like something, I just, I just need the time. Um, DC Comics had reached out to the publishing world and they wanted... Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, there's a new publishing line and they wanted mainstream publishers um, or mainstream authors reimagining... S- the main DC Universe characters. Um, I think Roxanne I just, Gay is doing one. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So maybe you can help us define that, because I noticed you, you said comic books, and then you said graphic novels. Yesterday, we were doing a podcast with fellow author Jonathan Evison, and he broke a little girl's heart, because she asked a question about graphic novels, and he said, oh, you mean comic books? 
So can you? Oh, she didn't. She didn't. He didn't break he her heart. He is dead to me. She came up to him and schooled him afterwards. afterwards yeah, eleven years old. She was With awesome. Glitter all over she had her glitter face. everywhere, and she was like, "Excuse me, they are not the same." <laughs> and he backed down. He did back down. But so, I, what is the difference? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's the bindery. If you want to oh. be technical, yeah, comics are still you know on the racks at your comic store uh-huh. or wherever, and a graphic novel is usually perfect bound, and they take you know six issues and put it together or there's just a standalone story that never existed in a comic right, form. it's not serial. And no. A graphic novel necessarily. But, well, well, some of them are. So there's a lot of popular serials that they'll just, every year, they'll turn oh, it see, into yeah. a graphic novel. So do you think the hero's journey shows up in your books? Not just the hero's journey, but there's a, there's a different kind of storytelling. I mean, there's, there's print and then there's film and graphic novels. You can do things on the page. Right. There's visual cues and metaphors you can do that you can't do in either medium, which right, is right. interesting. If you look at like Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, I mean, it's just there's so much going on on the page, and you couldn't get that kind of subtlety in a film. You know what I think of when, as a writer, when I read something like Fun Home, is how did she plot it? How did she do it? Right? I mean, it's such a marriage of text and and image. Yeah, is it storyboarded it's, out, but then I don't know. It's amazing. Graphic storytelling. I mean, it's yeah. really it's it's the, the it's times where yeah. I was able to to do some scripts. I, I worked. I used uh, uh, screenwriting software for oh, it yeah, because it was just sense. a different way of thinking, and yeah. even that was kind of limiting for what it, I wanted to it do. It seems like it'd be you know if you're all if you're used to writing novels, it'd be a really cool challenge to have to visualize so much. So I'm still trying to make this connection between okay. superhero comic books and your books, and I think I found it. Okay. Superhero books, there's always an undercurrent that the superheroes are a little bit crippled by their otherness. Ooh. Oh, like, he was off like mic, Superman. but he said, ooh. Wow. Like Superman. No. Yeah, I like that. Because I know that that's, that's, a, that's a big theme in all of your books. Yeah. And I, I think most of the Silver Age superhero comic books, the heroes were always the outcast, the outsider. Yep. They didn't fit For in. Sure. Mm-hmm. And when you're biracial you don't fit in. Like, right. I, I didn't speak Cantonese like the rest of my family and that I I wasn't completely Caucasian because my white friends would come over and were eating chicken feet and I'm like, ew. What? You mean everyone doesn't eat chicken feet? You know, just one of those, those moments when you're like a sixth grader you realize how different you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And need I remind you who wrote all those comic books? Jews. Exactly. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but but another another thing with that is the, the now, actually, go, continue. Is it going to come to you? or, or we No, I was like, I mean, I, it was I, kind I, of a can of worms. I don't want to go out there. Oh, okay. Well, I, I do want to circle around the whole thing about this history in the West, though, because so much of sort of the American story is from the lens of the East, the East Coast. Yeah. And there is something really um, thrilling in your books that they're unapologetically about the West, and they start further West, to the east, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's, right? so I mean, far it's, west or east. But, but that's an unusual experience as a reader. Um, I'm a West Coast guy. I know, I love it. I, Dude, I'm, I love I'm it. doing a writer's residency right now in Chicago for a month. Oh, and yeah. So I, you know, I popped over here from Chicago. But they're all East Coast people. Right. And we're having dinner, and they're all talking about, well, didn't you read The New Yorker this week? And, and I've never read The New Yorker once in my life. <laughs> like, I don't care. I, it's like it's so, I might, it's it's so alien to me. Not just from being a kid, but also there's just a level of pretension. I mean, I've read stories that have been in that, but I don't 
I don't judge people by what's in their bathroom. Yeah, it's a weird. Bunch of New Yorkers. Yeah, because that is sort of a signifier. If you go in some, oh, there's a bunch of New Yorkers. I see who I'm dealing with now. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to ask. I understand the Western thing, but why always Seattle? I mean, you've, I know you lived in Seattle, but you've lived a lot of places. And you've set all these books in Seattle. And it seems like there's a definite fascination with Seattle's, what, when I moved there, they call it the International District. Yeah. But not anymore. I don't, are they just calling it straight up Chinatown now, right? No, well, they, there's been a, a little battle. That it's the, some people call it, the, China, the old school Chinese people call it Chinatown. The newer people call the it ID. the ID, yeah. International District, and then they settled on Chinatown ID. That's its real name, Chinatown. but I just call it the no. International District. Yeah. So is it a fascination with that area or experience with that? I know the, the, it seemed like the inspiration for Hotel on the Corner, Bitter and Sweet, comes from a specific, was it something you read about the Panama Hotel or, or a yeah. specific, that building? Um. Well, going back to the, to the initial Seattle question is, I do think writers write about what they lament. And so I live in Montana. I miss Seattle. Mm-hmm. and But I miss the Seattle that doesn't exist anymore. Right. You miss the 1909 Seattle. Yeah. Or the, even the 80s Seattle. The, yeah. the, the, the 70s, like, sleazy pawn shop, porn theater, First Avenue Seattle. I remember it well. <laughs> I moved to Seattle in 1988 the first time. And my first impression was that all the buildings seemed to be huddled up against the rain. You know? And now yeah. if you go there, they're proud. They stand out. Yeah. But back then, they seemed to be kind of... It, it was a different vibe then. And, yeah. and, I, and oh, I, I write to go late. back there. There's a, there's a great line That's from a, a Jason Isbell song where he's, he, he said, um, Daddy said the river will always, always take you home, but the river can't take you back in time, and Daddy's dead and gone. And so I sort of missed Jason that. Isbell. I, don't you think it's true, too, that it's it's easier to write about a place when you're not embedded in it? I mean, I write about Great Falls quite a bit yeah. and haven't lived there in 30 years. I just think there's a lot of... And maybe it's that that uh, fighting back against everything being so New York-centric. I mean, mm-hmm. so much of the publishing world is condensed into one, you know... Yeah half a mile radius and so the books that come out are reflective of that and yep. if you go to a party in Brooklyn it's definitely a New York vibe and on the west coast it's a little different it's not like mm-hmm. Tupac Biggie Smalls we're going to shoot each other but there's a difference <laughs> but I could see <laughs> I could see where it, it, I, I was you know the word resent popped in my head but it's not resentful it's more I, I like mean, we live in San Francisco full of West Coast writers, right? And I know what you're right. talking about. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely it's, got its own vibe. It's rich, thriving. No, and it's it's not as in the feeling. It's not as negative as resentful, but it's something. No. And it's not like, hey, what about us? But it, there definitely is like, well, I get pissed off, honestly. Do you? You actually I get do. mad? I get. Well, I, I get it. No, yeah. well, I mean, I've had conversations with editors. Like I, I, I put all these details in my books, and yeah. they're like, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. Because no one cares. And I'm like, you know, if you got rid of the Chelsea Hotel Correct. and this, people would care. And, she, and, the, and the answer was, well, nothing out there is as iconic right. as what's in New York. Oh, boy. And I... Yeah, that, that was, would make me bristle. Yeah. Especially that, if, if, I mean, it sounds like in part you're writing about Seattle so you can kind of restore it in your mind. Yeah. And for them to take that away is pretty brutal. Yeah. But New York is the most provincial place I've ever lived. By far. Totally. Wow. And yeah. you live in San Francisco. And I live in San Francisco. But it's not as provincial. Not, a, not at all. But I mean, 
that old New Yorker cover, the one where oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, what, t- explain it's it. It's the world, the New Yorker's <laughs> view of the world. Yep. And it's like the yes. Hudson, and then like there be dragons yeah. is after that. Um, <laughs> yeah, just the, the world ends, but, ships go yeah. off you know, the edge, wagons the that, plummet. Exactly, that no one could ever remember where I was from. People would always say to me, um, "It's so amazing that you ended up in New York. It's so amazing oh, yeah. that you are so self-invented, or or whatever, because I'm doing what they're doing." <laughs> In New York, but yeah. see, but but both of you take it a step further. You're writing. You're not writing about L.A. You're writing about Seattle. Yeah, they will admit that L.A. exists. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I wanted to to write three Seattle books, at least three, because I just wanted to mine that for story material until I, I, I kind of played that out. And uh, the new project I'm working on is in Seattle, but it's also Seattle. In like the future, twenty forty-five, and it's also oh. in England. It's also in Baltimore, and it's also in Burma. So it's, wow. it's kind of based in Seattle, but it bounces around. Uh, do you travel to do the research? Sometimes for this one, I I don't. You know, the Burma is nineteen forty, so mm. it, it wouldn't serve me to go to Myanmar right. and and see it as it is now. Um, Although we do have a writer friend of Myanmar right now, if you want we do, to yeah. Local. I mean, I would just like to go and Lear. chill. That would be fun, oh, and call that. it research. <laughs> um, That's what you should do. Yeah, I mean, for Write another off. another book, I did. I did go to Japan and spent a couple weeks there for research. Um, mo- since most of my stuff is contained in Seattle, I end up going to Seattle for my research. So how how has Seattle responded to you? Good question. <laughs> uh, Seattle's interesting. I mean, I, I love it, but I, I went to the Bumbershoot Festival, which is the big music yeah. fest they have there, and I was with my daughter and one of her friends, and s- some people stopped me. They're like, are you Jamie Ford? Nice. And that was a moment. Oh, yeah. yeah. My, my daughter's like, what? <laughs> she, was, you know, she was like 14 when your parents are remarkably Ebus. uncool. Are you inched yeah. up? Well, were yeah. these, maybe were they cool Seattle people who recognized you or not? Uh, no, it wasn't anybody famous or anything no. like that. But, it was no, just but did like, they look cool? Were they... No, Big they looked they looked uh, of my generation, yeah. oh, my okay. vintage. Um, Not middle aged, your vintage. Yeah, they no. didn't look like they walked out of a hot topic store <laughs> at that moment in my child's but they, life. But they recognize you as a writer, not like yeah. Oh, I get wait, recognized I at the airport a bunch too, um, and I, and I spend a lot of time in the ID, and I a lot of times I, I take this early flight in. I know all the flights by heart. I get there before I can check into my hotel or, or knock on a friend's door. So I, I roll into Seattle like at 7.45. I go to the Panama Hotel because it's open. And I sit there and I use their Wi-Fi and have a cup of tea. And then people start coming through, like book clubs with books in hand. Oh, that's And they're exciting. looking at stuff and they're taking photos. And I just sort of like try to blend into the wallpaper. That, it's really uh, cool. Yeah, that's that, awesome. That's an interesting position to be put in um, because have you, been a, have you ever been tempted to go and i'm right here here i am <laughs> uh you know i never really do that like i remember a story about bob kane who was kind of the inventor of batman the creator there was a bunch mm. of people that were the creators but he, throughout his life he would tell anyone like waiters and yeah. bartenders I'm bob, kane. I'm bob kane you know you know who this is this is the inventor of batman like and i, I don't want to be that guy so i'm pretty if they recognize me then i'm happy to chat but mm-hmm. i tend to just let them do their thing it must be very satisfying though come on surreal yeah, it's weird very surreal, very surreal. Yeah. and how and when you do readings in seattle or events in seattle how's the how's the uh, turnout 
The Seattle events are always really good, except for one event that I committed to for the Seattle's main library. And you know, I committed to it like nine months in advance. And about three weeks out, I realized I was doing my thing on Super Bowl Sunday. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we still had like 200 people. But, but that's pretty good for Super Bowl that? Sunday. Yeah. But I mean, it seats 450 or something like that. So it always that's, feels a little funny. Yeah. It's, library, it's, no. The bad. number of people to the scale of the room is <laughs> yeah. important. Well, I think the Venn diagram for library people and football people. I don't know. But there's some overlap, for there's sure. There's some I, overlap. I but, and on that day, I wanted to be watching exactly. football and eating oh, chicken exactly. wings. Exactly, exactly. I guess the next logical question is, were the Seahawks in No, this? no, no. Okay, because no. then nobody would have been yeah, there. No one yeah, have, I wouldn't have been there. I would have canceled. That would have been a completely <laughs> righteous thing to do, for sure. Hey, before I forget, I know we talked about, you talked about how when you were in high school, you were a big consumer of comic books, but you also were a big Harlan Ellison fan. Can you tell your Harlan Ooh. Ellison story? Harlan, Uncle Harlan, passed away recently. Um, yeah, <laughs> when I was in, I was in junior high, and I guess I was ninth grade, um, which in Seattle, that's high school um, at the time. And a book was banned from our library. And so I, I, it was Deathbird Stories by Harlan Ellison. And so I went to the public library, and I checked it out, and I consumed that book, even though I didn't understand some of it. Um, but I knew... Can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Okay. I knew that was, that was when I realized books had the power to cause parents to lose their shit. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I wanted more of that. And, and so, and, and were those your parents? You know, it's weird. My parents were really supportive. So my mom always wanted me to be a writer. My dad always wanted me to be an artist. But it was the other people wow. around yeah. me so that I thought were, that I always felt. I mean, I, I ask because we're parents. What book could your kid bring home that would freak you out? Nothing. Howard Stern. Oh yeah, if it was uh, if it was uh, the art of the just to, like, deal, or, oh, yeah, yeah deal. I would disown them. I can think yeah. of a few, but uh, I was I, I, raised I, I, super, super, super Catholic, and they used to have that list of like the banned books list. Yeah. And my parents did not enforce it, and I, I thought they I got were on so a amazing. Fox News list of bad books. You did yeah. for which one? For which one? It was this is for what? Right at for Hotel because I was oh. promoting. It was like a hundred books that um, they got flagged for, you know, watch out for these books on colleges. Anti-Americanism? Uh, promoting multiculturalism. Like oh, God, that's, I hate even, that. It's wow. so un-American. I think they used to that, call that the mongrelization of the races. Yes. I think that's what they used to call that's that. That's actually Coffin, code I believe for that. They yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, uh, that's usually good for sales, though, probably. Uh, well, it was just it was a ton of books. Okay. But it yeah. was also banned in Arizona when Arizona right banned on. all of their ethnic studies. Oh, my God. So Son ethnic is anything not white? Yeah, they, they actually the, the the head of the Department of Education went to a school, was challenged by a bunch of Latino kids about why don't we teach Latin American history right. alongside it, and he barked back, and they barked back with facts, and he went away and had all non-Caucasian books banned in high oh schools. Like, in, I'm not going to deal with this. Yeah, and then he sock puppeted himself, created these fake accounts, and went on to like <laughs> newspaper websites saying all this horrible racist stuff. So that's awesome when that happens. Oh boy! So I'm yeah, so he's out of a job. Okay, well that's good. That was right. a good ending. But I don't want to sidetrack you. Yeah. Back Sorry. to Harlan Ellison. Oh Harlan. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Harlan really. I mean, I loved his work. It inspired me. It's what made me want to be a writer. And then. As in the twilight of my previous career, 
when my I always say when my world was on fire, I read Harlan Ellison books. I would go to this bookstore that stayed open till midnight. I'd get a coffee and I'd sit there and just read. And I just found such comfort in like his his nonfiction, the essays he used to write in the LA Free Press. It's like a what today would be just like a brilliant blog piece. It's so angry and vulnerable and honest and emotional. And writing about a you know marching with uh, you know uh, Martin Luther King and Selma to just talking about the death of his first pet you know it's things of grave significance and things of just small Quotidian. but yeah yep. and all of that stuff showed me a range of what you can do with emotion you had like an emotional palette and I was always a super emotional kid which is like my weakness through high school you know you don't want to be like the kid that cries at movies in high school yes, yeah. but that was me and and I, I was fine but with chicks that. Chicks actually dig that. I think. Well, yeah, now they do. Now they do. Oh, I, yeah. I don't know. I went to the largest high school in Washington State. Oh my god! Oh, did you go to South imagine. Kitsap? Yes. Oh boy. Yeah. So basically, at South Kitsap, it was like you had football, you had science of football, chemistry of football, history of football. <laughs> Everything was you know football and that science. The, that was the eighties. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was when they were a powerhouse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Harlan. You know, it made me realize all of what I thought were my weaknesses were actually my strengths as a writer. Um, and eventually, yeah, I actually, I, I don't know if you know this, I bought Harlan Ellison's first typewriter. That's, yeah. Yeah. It, it and, was, you, I, and you had a relationship with him, right? You knew him. Yeah, yeah. Hung out with Harlan a lot. Went down to That's his house amazing. in Sherman Oaks and hung out with he and his wife, Susan. He's, he has this larger-than-life personality, and he's pretty caustic and obnoxious. Surprise. Surprise. (laughs) But one-on-one, he's so kind and generous. He still has that, that there's no filter. Mm -hmm. But, but like, you know, he's, he's shown me around his house and he has a special loft, which is where he reads and has his reading chair. And next to it, he has his favorite book. And he's just showing me this stuff. And he's like, sit, sit down, sit down. I'm like, it's your chair. And he's like, He's like, sit the fuck down. And I, I sit down. And he's like, okay, just get comfortable. I'm going to read to you for a while. And he just read to me for like a half an hour. Oh, wow. From his favorite book in his chair, in his reading, you know, loft. Yep. And he was... That's spent- pretty generous. And and it's it's interesting, as you were telling that story, and especially the part about learning the range of emotion through him and how to be a writer, usually I ask guests, when was the moment that you felt you're a writer? And it's usually based on some positive feedback they got. Something they wrote that... Someone said, hey, you're actually really good at this. You should pursue it. But it sounds to me like you sort of became a writer through learning from him. Yeah. You know, we, Harlan told me more about, like, Harlan had some ups and downs business-wise mm-hmm. um, in Hollywood and in the publishing world. So he, his advice was always around, save your money, kid. Save your money. You know, that kind of it's stuff. It's not bad advice. Yeah, but when when I really felt like a writer was uh, was spending time with Pat Conroy, who wrote uh, Prince of Tides, yeah. Great Santini. Yep. How did um, that come about? You know, I did this event in East Texas, and it was that's where I first met him, and he was so I was super intimidated because I love all his work. It's very emotional. The father figure is always somewhat villainous, and I relate to that, and you know spent a little bit of time with him, but I wasn't sure if he even would remember me. And then like a year later, I was in Savannah at a book festival in a 
big room of you know 200 people and he just he saw me and waved me across the room and just threw his arms around me and gave me this huge hug and he's like Jamie your book's on fire I'm so proud of you and I, your next one you know send it to me I'd love to blurb it and I was just like I was I, my feet weren't touching the floor at that moment. I think that is one of the most thrilling parts of the writing life is being able to meet your heroes and oh, yeah. having them meet you back is that's the best astonishing. part. And, and as someone who now has a book that spent eighty nine weeks in the New York Times bestseller list, have you been able to pay it forward? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, in, in different ways. Um, I mean, I. I'm, de- I'm, de- I'm definitely, you know, blurbs are the little, you know, I, the little pra- sentences of praise, yeah, endorsements yeah. of books, and I, I blurb tons of books. I'm basically a blurb slut, so I'm, and slut. I'm yeah. a blurb yeah. slut, and so I blurb a lot. Um, I do, I teach writing a lot. I, I do writing workshops at Where alternative high schools. Oh, but um, have you had an opportunity to remember an obscure author who didn't think you'd remember him? Or her. Or her. Oh, wow. I don't, I, I never put myself on that pedestal with like <laughs> Pat Conray, so I don't even think to do Surprise. that. Yeah. Um, the stuff where I think of giving back is like I've, I've taught in prisons. Sure. And, and uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, there's a, uh, a homeless shelter that has a book club and visited places like that that are really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I always, um, well, I mean, shoot, I'm at, I'm at a writing residency now and I guess I'm one of the older more published people and there's someone that's very young working on that first book two people and spend a lot of time with them and basically I tell them like if I can do it anyone can yeah, do it yeah I mean and you're in a position to say that because I mean Pat Conroy was treating you as a peer yeah it was and weird what that was worth yeah yeah and also something Jonathan Evison was talking about yesterday that you know you don't have to have an MFA to be a writer that's not yeah. a requirement I he's part of the non-MFA mafia the, the reason I, I like Jonathan is I read his work and I know he's self-taught I, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's on the page and I don't mean that because he's writing in crayon you, yep. you know it's because it's brilliant and, and it's not affected and, yep. and mm-hmm. I'm I, I go to workshops sometimes and I can there's nothing wrong with having an MFA. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think maturity needs to come with the MFA. And I see a lot of kids that are like 24 with their MFA. And they haven't, they, they, they're know-it-alls about writing, but they haven't experienced anything. And so there's this vapidness to their stories. There's no pulse. There's no soul. There's no beating heartbeat. They could, they're great with like the literary jujitsu of the, arranging clever words in, in an order, but the story's missing. And so story's always important. That's always comes first for me. That's an interesting take because of what I hear of the business world, you could have replaced MFA with MBA and made totally. the same argument. Yeah. Um, so I want to go back actually to, oh, all of a sudden I got kind of quiet, to, to the process you underwent in your transition from ad guy to best-selling author and and how you I guess how you went from germ of an idea to finishing house or hotel on the corner of bitter and sweet oh um, at some point you had to sit down and decide I'm going to write a novel yeah I I went to uh, a writing workshop in 2006 in Virginia and it was run by a, a science fiction author or fantasy author as well and the the 10 workshop uh you know, people that had applied and got in. We represented different genres, and but we were all 
on the same you know level of our journey you know starting to take it seriously and maybe written a book but hadn't quite figured anything out um and i i wrote this short story um with the characters of henry and keiko and sheldon which was uh, you know the beginnings of hotel and everyone really liked it and i wasn't sure what to make of it i mean i was it felt great but i i just you know i'm just i'm, I'm i will never not have self-doubt about my own work you know i'll always feel like it's never good enough and i a month later i went to the squaw valley writers conference and i workshopped that story again and um met with an editor and he, and he said um if i were you i would quit my job immediately or I quit my quit my job and write this book as fast as you can. Wow! And I didn't quit my I'm job. I'm just like, dude, have another glass of wine. Slow down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pace yourself, dude. Um, <clears throat> but I did. I went home. I unplugged my TV. And when you're a writer, you work in isolation. And when you get that kind of validation from someone who you respect, it's narcotic. Yeah. I mean, it just yeah. it just it was yeah. just like went into my bloodstream. And so I just cranked. And in three months, I had the first draft. And that was, and wow. that's while I had the day job. So I'm riding from ten at night to about two in the morning, and then on weekends. And how much time did you spend researching that one before you started writing it? That one, I'd, I'd done a lot of research okay. because um, I knew I wanted to write something in Seattle's international district, somewhere between the Depression and World War II. So I was just splashing around, and by splashing around, I mean we all have those moments where you go on Wikipedia and then suddenly like three hours disappear because you've gone down a rabbit hole. And I had just gone down a lot of rabbit holes. You can call it research. You can call it wasting time. Um, A little bit of both. It turned out not to be wasting time. Yeah, it it, it worked. Yeah. And then when you finished, uh, tell us about the process of finding an agent and getting it published. Yeah. I, I, I still had the day job. I was a partner in a firm with, uh, three other people. Holy moly. I mean, that's a real job. Yeah. That's yeah. It's tough to walk away from that. I didn't walk. I was voted off the island. Oh, oh you were? Yes. Oof. Yeah. The, the finger of fate. Yeah. So it that worked is out. fate intervening. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they knew I wanted to be, to be a writer because I was always spending my vacations going to writers conferences. Um, I don't think they realized how far deep down the path I was. And I basically, I sent out uh, hotel to agents um, had a lot of interest um, had offers from five agents and I wow. chose my agent on a Thursday and then I left the firm the next day and wow because those, those two those two confluences just that's fantastic because I was just going to say this seems like a really interesting moment to me because you have to choose and I would say think that your first intuition would be I got to start sending out resumes got to get another job yeah. but she didn't have to well yeah i mean i was a partner so they had to buy me out so that bought me a little yeah. cushion so time. i thought okay i can chill i mean like i'll run out of money in 18 months and i'll have to go get a job again um that's almost perfect for getting the book out it was and it does feel very faded yeah it does and if feel the book faded. didn't sell well then i'd I'd, yeah. I'd go back and i'd figure out another career path um i was just really Lucky. I mean, you can you can only control your relationship to the work and your, con- yep. your relationship to readers. But whether a book takes off or not, it's it's you know it had a little zeitgeist moment that's completely out of my control. What was, was the zeitgeist grateful. moment? Do you think What's why that? why that book? What was the zeitgeist moment? I mean, why that then? Uh, a, a lot of things. I think for generations, uh, 
the Japanese internment wasn't in our history books. Yeah. Um, it was just left out. And also, to be fair, in many Japanese-American homes, it wasn't discussed. Mm-hmm. And the Sansei, the third generation, was finally asking questions. Mm-hmm. And at a time when our society was wanting answers for things that uh, were unjust in the past, instead of just like walking past it, it was like, let's go back and pick this apart and learn from it. And so I think a lot of those things were happening. Um, you know, Obama was president, and there was a, a cultural shift, I think, as far as an awareness that people of color have stories that they can tell in their own voices. And there's something for the rest of us to learn because there's stories we've never heard. And part of the American experience. Totally. Yeah. So when you're, if you have a first book and it becomes part of the zeitgeist, it must be a rush as the author, but is it a rush of excitement, dread, uh, expectation? What did it feel like to realize <laughs> that all of a sudden your book was going to take off? Uh, <clears throat> the great thing is I, you know, I live in a you know, reasonably small town in Montana. And I, I not by Montana standards. I know. Yeah. Montana, it's a metropolis, <laughs> but you know, but I, but the thing is I don't live in Brooklyn in this yeah. hyper right. competitive, uh, strange literary environment. Like in Montana, I still have to pick up dog poop in the backyard. You know, it's like Mr. New York times bestseller, get out there. Um, it doesn't <laughs> matter. It, is but, there, but, but people did think that, like, I'd see people in the grocery store, yeah. and they're like, you're still here. Like, like I'm suddenly going to move to L.A. Oh, like, oh. Salman Rushdie rolls up in a minivan and gets out, like, get in. <laughs> you're one of us. Is there a writing community in, in Great Falls? Um, or is it all expats? I think there's a writing community st- statewide. Yeah. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of writers there. Well, there's a great tradition. Yeah. Jim Harrison, Tom McGuane. So, so at least it's not like... Oh, there's Ford. What's he up to? Yeah. he doesn't go to work? Yeah, it was... You're like the other Montana Ford writer. Yeah. The real one. Who's the other? Richard Ford. Oh, Richard Ford. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because you live there, I'm just saying. Yeah, Richard Ford gets a bad review and then, like, leaves. Takes the reviewer's books in the backyard and shoots them with his rifle. (laughs) That seems pretty Montana to me. Seems reasonable. There's a very, very controlled, rational human being at the helm of that gun. So your life stayed pretty normal, but how did you deal with expectations when it came to writing your next book? Oh, yeah, that sucked. Yeah, the second book. That sucked. Um, The problem was we didn't know Hotel was going to be a hit, so I had already started this other project. Mm -hmm. And then, like, I'm writing in obscurity, and then suddenly Mm -hmm. everyone wanted to know what I was doing. So it's not just my editor, it's the publisher, it's the marketing director, the online marketing director, the PR person, the sales you know, regional salespeople. There's like 20 people all like, what are you doing next? And that was really hard. And I, I kind of had vapor lock at, at that point. It, it really so, messed me up. I mean, yeah. it's not good for the process for sure. It was, it was horrible. Yeah. I, I had this, this book that I, like between my first and second book, I had another book that as hotel became important to Random House's profit and loss statement, they took a new interest in my next book and had lots of opinions. And I, I, you know, now I've sold a lot of books, so I I have a little bit of a fuck you equity. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, wasn't sure if I had that at that time. Mm -hmm. And so they'd say, well, what about this? You should do this. And I'd be like, I'd nod my head like a circus chimp and I'd go do it. And I made all these revisions and the book ended up just being like Frankenstein. It was like, Mm -hmm. you know, all these parts sewn together. And ultimately... 
you know, they accepted the book. We were in copy edits, and I'd sold it in Australia and Italy and Norway. Um, and then they wanted a huge rewrite at that moment. And wow. that's when I said, I, I, I told my editor at the time, I said, I'll do it, but your name's going on the cover because <laughs> I'm done. And I had actually started another little book, and I showed her the first chapter of that, and she loved it, and that became Songs of Willow Frost. Oh, that's a good story. That is, it, the, yeah. It sounds good, but there was a moment I know, where I was, was just, hell to you know, live through. yeah, yeah, just banging but, my head against know, the wall. It's ultimately um, empowering, though. I mean, you got to say, "Nah, I'm not sending this and, out." There and with integrity my name on it. wins up. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I just didn't want to put out a, a book that I'm going to go on tour and apologize for. I mean, that's yeah, that'll be horrible. well, yeah, and especially I mean, there is something riding on it. I mean, yeah. you don't have a sophomore slump. Yeah, and even you know, this. I mean, the second book. You know, was a New York Times bestseller. The sales metric never measured up, but I still love that book, I, and I, I'm, I'm very happy with thing. it. Yeah, don't you think? I mean, yeah. in the long life of a writer, you don't want to cringe every time you see that title. Yeah, that's the book I'm most proud about. That's honestly, so, awesome. so we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask um, about. We, we sort of covered a little bit of what you're working on now. What's what's the status of that? Do you are you close to the finish line? Yeah. Oh no, God no. Um, I struggled for this last year. Um, I, I really felt like I was, I, I was sort of putting myself in a box, and I think some publishers would like you to stay in that box. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I was writing on. I was I had ideas that were firmly in the box, and as I'm writing them, I'm just hating myself. And so I'd show it to my agent, and she's just like, "You're not having fun, are you?" And I'm like, "I just, it's, it was that very was, obvious. I, I felt like a, a, a coal miner and less of a writer. Mm-hmm. It's just." punch the clock and I just couldn't do it and so I had another project that my agent was really excited about and I went to this residency and I was that was the plan I was going to work on that and I got there and I kind of struggled for about a week um, and there's another author there uh, essayist named uh, Megan Stilstra and she basically just kicked my butt and and she's just like the sister I I've always wanted it was great and she just said take the pressure off use this space for inspiration and whatever you get out of it is what's supposed to happen. And so I put that other project aside and I I went down this other path and I ended up writing a 12-page synopsis that uh, two days ago I sent to my agent and editor. It's with my agent. My agent loves it. Waiting to hear back from my editor. But I'm pretty confident that'll be the next book. And it's that's the one that bounces into the locations. And it's, it's about... Uh, <laughs> transgenerational epigenetic inheritance um, and I'll just leave it at that Ooh, wow. he keeps okay coming. you guys They're, keep a look out keep a look out they're going to kick us out but before they do Jamie tell them uh, website Twitter how they can get a hold of you uh, yeah all the usual places at Jamie Ford on Twitter I think at Jamie Ford official on Instagram, Jamie Ford author on Facebook, JamieFord.com. Uh, JamieFord.com. My home address is 123 Alpine <laughs> Drive. Um, Great Falls, Montana. Great Falls, Montana. Do you remember one thing today? The, the house with the red door. Remember that. Uh, as for us, you can find us at uh, grottopod.com. Uh, as for Bridget, you can find her tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Where is your event? I don't know how to say that place. The Awani? Am I saying it right? Awani? Awaihi. Awaihi. First floor uh, yeah. gallery. Talking about women and the history of art. More fun than that sounds, you guys. 
That's, that's totally I see fun. nodding. It sounds it's good super to me. fun. Yeah, it's I've, good. I've read her book. I'm an art it's major. It's fun. fun. I know. Art I'm major. All in. Come. Oh, it also, is. you can see Jamie tomorrow with Jonathan Evison and Tara Conklin, Tara Conklin at noon. Noon. Uh, also in the. Oh, it's noon. Good. I thought it was three, and I had to pick. I had to choose. Oh, three is me and Jonathan. Oh, okay. I'll do the doing another more of a craft-oriented writer talk. All right, that's it. That's it for us. Thanks everyone for coming out. I know there's another event soon. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. Jamie, I gotta go.